there's our topic yeah. for today the user experience in zoom well that's the question because actually well my my topic which i haven't put in the show notes um uh, is the thing that has been really bothering me anybody use evernote Nope. I used to use Evernote and then I switched to OneNote when they changed to a very expensive paid model. Or they changed they changed something. I was a, an Evernote user for a long time and then they changed something. I think it was around paying and I went, screw you, buddy. I'm going yeah. to OneNote, which is free. I have been an Evernote user since January 2010. I have 27,000 notes in Evernote. Basically <laughs> everything in my life goes into Evernote. You know, like if I buy something and the receipt goes into Evernote, um, if I plant something in the garden and I want to know what it is and how I care for it, the photograph of the label goes into Evernote. Um, I forward numerous emails that I get into Evernote so that I've got a, a record of everything. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm invested. Um, and and they've, they've recently released an upgrade. So like they've spent the last two years uh, developing a new version of Evernote. Uh, they recognized that the, the the four different platforms that they had, like Android, iOS, Windows, and, and um, uh, Mac, weren't good enough. Uh, and so on the, at the start of October, they rolled out uh, an Electron-based version of Evernote. Oh, really? Um, That's interesting. And, and I hate it. <laughs> they've 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 removed features they've removed like apple script doesn't work so some of the shortcuts that i've set up doesn't work anymore they've removed the uh, keyboard shortcuts they've um they've done all these kind of and i understand why you know like the product had stagnated and they couldn't maintain four separate platforms and they they needed to to work but they've can't use electron on mobile so it seems a weird choice oh, they still yeah. have to they still have to split it up like yeah. you can share some stuff between React Native and Electron, but it's still, still not going to be great. Yeah. So I'm just like, I, I understand why they've done it. Uh, I, I know that they'll bring back those features eventually, but it just doesn't feel like a Mac app anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of don't like it. Um, Did they delete the old one? Like it's completely dead? No, now? it's it's there. So I can, I, oh, okay. I, I've got, I've got two versions of Evernote now. I've got Evernote and Evernote <laughs> Legacy and, <laughs> bouncing back and forth between the two and there's all that sort of stuff so there's definitely a, a, a discussion to be had about how hard it is to maintain software uh, and how how bad these shared platforms are um evernote should die did you record that you recorded that already talking, right? <laughs> yeah talk about weird desktop apps have you seen uh kotlin you know compose for desktop oh i heard of it i heard of it yeah i, I didn't look at it but basically, you can do Jetpack, but for uh, for doing desktop applications. Oh, so I'm going to have a play with that. I, I've barely looked at it myself. I just saw the link the other day, but I was too busy to do anything on it. But uh, it's, a, it's a really fascinating idea because I've been looking for ages for something that we can actually use to write demo applications on the desktop. So it uh, looks really nice. Yeah, that that would be cool if, if, it, if it makes an app that feels native. I think I think my big concern with these these sort of cross-platform applications is that they save us time as developers, so we we can reuse code, um, and we don't have to work to maintain multiple platforms. Yeah. But what we lose is the the affordances of the platform. Yes, lowest common denominator. Yeah, but I don't I don't know. I think well, my my thinking is what what are those what are those differentiating features of the platform that that you lose, you know, like. What 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 is it there that you're losing? 
for example. Native experience. Although on mobile, isn't it things like certain thick pitch, uh, parts of the camera? And that That's fine. Of, you can so. usually hook into that. It's more the the kind of standards of layout and stuff. Yeah. If you use this kind of middle ground, you lose that. Yeah. You know, if you if you try and make something for Android and Apple, they can't look the exact same. You have to pick one or the other. Um, and then those people are going to be happy and the other people are going to be unhappy. And that's it's the same thing with this. But that's a problem too, that you don't have consistency of experience with the the app. Because there's like, you know, like there, there's really annoying things with say some of the Office products on Mac because they don't have the same features as they do on Windows. And 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 there's just there's just features missing or mislocated or you know yeah. it's it's really annoying you know so there's a consistency of experience there it works both ways that you yeah. use to i mean it's kind of the ideal world is you want all yeah. the same features just with a different layout but like i think i think in this case here ryan like if, if they had if they had read read on the platform and they just were migrating from say objective c to to swift or a different ui library or or something else that was native on mac i think you'd probably still have the same complaints that's i think what you're experiencing is maybe the the rewrite versus incremental change problem and as soon as you do a rewrite on anything you know yeah i mean i i, I kind of I, I understand that they need to remove some features so they can they can get that parity and bring it back so i i trust them that they're going to you know that I've lost my my command J to jump to a specific note. Um, I I know that that will come back eventually. Um, but it's like if you look at uh, the the kind of the the interaction that you have with it, the way the app behaves, like when you reopen it, does it open up where it was before, or does it open up um, in the middle of the screen? And oftentimes it's in the middle of the screen because it's not doing what the the software platform expects it. Um, I keep on getting these prompts that like it'll throw up a modal dialogue yeah. um, in the middle of me doing something else on top of my screen that says there's an update available. Do you want to update now? And I'm like, well, no, go away. But I can't, I can't dismiss it. And I'm just waiting for that to happen whenever I'm in the middle of training and and it's going to do this. And it's like, and partly that's just bad developers or maybe it's product managers. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Well, we should talk about that. Uh, you know, who's who's at fault for for that in, interrupting of me? Um, but it just it doesn't feel it doesn't feel Mac. It doesn't feel like a Mac app. It's like if you use like the Apple News app, it doesn't feel like a Mac app because it's an iOS app that they've ported. Um and you you lose some of the 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 way that it feels and the way that it behaves, which means that it doesn't fit with all of the other applications that you use. Um which I I, I I'm not great at. You know, I happily use Visual Studio Code, for example. Uh and it's an electron app. Uh and I don't really complain very much. Slack's a bit annoying. See, maybe me me coming from a Windows user point of view, like I'm used to apps, you know, behaving differently. And there's there's times where it's really annoying where you'd want to have more seamless integration. Say, for example, like like voice input and and keyboard behaviors and things. And I experience that more in like mobile apps or say, for example, in my TV, my smart TV, the way that all the apps aren't integrated in the same way as they are with say Apple TV. So there are times where I, I want it to be consistent and, and sort of unified interface probably especially around the interface especially around keyboard behavior and, and voice input and things like that um, but then there's other times where i want them to be different because they're different apps i don't want my video editing software to behave the same way as my word processing software and behave the same way as my my, my programming software you know so there's there's times where i want them to be widely different and to be have the freedom to be different you know like premiere behaves 
very differently to Visual Studio Code, which behaves very differently to, you know, I don't know. Yeah, that's true. But then, you know, when you when you want to drag a file into it, mm -hmm. you expect it to behave the same as every other application on the yeah, platform. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so there's there's work that developers need to do to make that happen. Yeah. But I suspect within it with like a, an Electron app, I suspect that's something that's easy to forget to do. Well, I think it's I think it's I think it's I think it's easy to forget to do it in both cases. Well, again, I'm, I'm thinking about developing again on, on Windows. Like those those features that you're talking about, say, for example, like drag and drop and things like that, like those you have to code for. So unless you have like a regulatory body, like say like the Apple store, where they say you have to adhere to all of these rules, you know, there's nothing in the programming language or the programming platform that dictates that you have to put in that feature. Do you know what I mean? You don't get it for free if you're programming yeah. in Swift compared to programming in TypeScript on Electron. You still yeah. have to code it. Now it's whether or not there's an actual barrier that says, well, it's impossible in, in this platform. But we we, yeah. we got drag and drop working on our last Electron app, Neil. Yeah, so because Electron is effectively a wrapper around Chrome, you just get, well, not Chrome, Google Chrome, but Chromium, you just get all that browser experience and the browsers have kind of thought about all that stuff. So that kind of stuff's free, I think, for the most part. Um, you get the native experience. The bit that's weird is when you're using hardware and it starts to get a bit strange, but... Basically, anything a browser can do, you can do in Electron. So it's probably not the best case study. I think that Kotlin Compose or JetBrains Compose, that's probably where things get a little more flaky because you're not leaning on this giant platform which has been around forever. You know, you're using something that they've created and then it's hooking in this swing and AWT or whatever it's called. And yeah, yeah it's probably pretty rough around the edges there yeah. for sure i like if you go to that link they show absolutely no screenshots of an actual application and there's probably a really good reason why they don't show any screenshots because it probably looks <laughs> horrendously awful i haven't um, looked yet but they talk about interop with awt yeah. and swing and all the rest of it so presumably they're not building on top of them maybe so i, I, I don't know but yeah I have to see what it's built on top of. It's very telling when they don't showcase one what it looks like. You know, that's usually a sign that it probably looks like Swing or it looks awful. It doesn't look. Well, like it's funny the way history keeps repeating because I mean, AWT had the the lowest common denominator thing because with AWT, um, it uh, was implemented using native components on all platforms. So there had to be a native component available on all platforms for it to be in AWT. So then that uh, they said, forget that, we'll just do everything in Java. So with Swing, they drew everything in Java and then the performance was absolutely hideous, you know? So then they, they went for the, okay, you know, sometimes we'll draw it in Java, sometimes we'll use a native component and then you're back to the, the issues with the, uh, the, the interop and look and feel across platforms and, you know, the, the pendulum just keeps swinging. So. What was the other one? Java Java FX, I think, was the other one, which you basically wrote a, a HTML page. Like you use CSS and stuff, so it looked more like a web page. And it it was written yeah. Java, and then Kotlin has a version of it now. And I think that's probably the best one if if you want to stay in that ecosystem. Yeah, the, the, there's the, D, the DSL on top of it, which I've temporarily forgotten the name of. But yeah, that that's really really nice. Tornado FX. So it, yeah, that's the one. I love that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's that. I think it's actually quite reasonable, but that's, again, it's. I think it's just kind of a wrapper around a web yeah. browser experience. So 
you get all that niceness. For and free, the trouble with JavaFX was it um, was launched at precisely the wrong time, you know, just as everybody was shifting to web apps. So nobody actually went out and learned yeah. it properly. I mean, if you do a, a Google search for books on it, you know, your, your cupboard will come back there. So it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Yeah. We did build one way back in the day. Well, I got an intern to build one and it was actually quite nice. There were some weird things, but for like simple little like in in office kind of tools and stuff, it's it's decently if you want to stick in Java and not terrify an intern. It's funny there, Neil, you're showing signs of management there. You know, it's like, well, I developed one, and by which I mean I got a good member of staff and developed one. That's exactly it. You, you work your way up until you don't have to write anything. You just tell other people to write everything. You know, you, you tell them where to put the nail in the wall, but you don't do it yourself. You're, no, that, that, you go, you that, go even you a level know. above that. You say, I want a picture here, uh, <laughs> and you don't care how it's hung. Never. You can take my keyboard out of my cold, dead hand. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have to say, I, I really enjoyed developing via Google Doc. It's a... It's a yeah, I mean, you, no, you don't spend it. a lot of time writing software code. Um, so, you know, I, I had to I had to spend um, my own personal time maintaining my my developer skills, but but building applications by by writing documents that then developers then implement um, is, is a lot of fun uh, because you get to have conversations with real people, uh, customers uh, and see how that works. So yeah. we're doc driven development. You should write a book on that. That is definitely a book title. Okay. Yeah, you know, there's the famous uh, piece of internet humor. It's the how to write hello world one, you know, where it goes from junior developer to senior developer and the number of lines of code keeps going up. But then there's a bit when it goes for senior developer to management, you know, so so junior management is an email. Yeah. And then senior management is somebody trying to write the email commands and launch Outlook and getting it wrong. Promoted to incompetency. Have you seen that? There's the the Dilbert cartoon where they go how technical decisions are made, and it's about where Dilbert goes to the pointy-haired boss and goes three-page report, and the pointy-haired boss goes to his boss and goes, you know, uh, one-page summary. Who goes to his boss? Who goes five bullet points? You know, who goes to the CTO and goes nice tie, and the CTO goes thanks. Have some stock options. You know, uh, so it's. <laughs> Okay, let's get back to it. So, Garth, tell us about certification. Sure. So, uh, for, for the past week, I've been putting together a sample exam for the uh, the new Oracle certification exam. So, uh, there's always been an exam that people call the you know the, the Java programmer exam, but it's gone under many different names. So, in the beginning, it was just one exam, uh, but then they put another exam in front of it called the associate exam, which was optional, so people didn't do it. Um, and then Oracle took charge and they split it. So it was two exams and uh, it was 200 pounds for, for doing each exam. But now, as of about a month ago, it's back to being one exam. So it's now a single exam that you do. And uh, uh, the, the certification uh, is now called the Java SE 11 developer exam. Yeah. Or the Oracle Certified Professional Java SE 11 developer exam. So that's, uh, uh, that, that's what they're calling it these days. And uh, the, the objectives are, uh, are interesting, to, to put it mildly, you know, they, they put in some things that I would regard as a, a little bit controversial. Yeah, so um, 
First of all, uh, you have to learn JDBC, okay? So that they want you to know like a low level JDBC. So my, my first question was, who does that these days? Annotations. Annotations is a good one. Have you ever, have you ever created it? I've never done it. I've never had to. I've used annotations, obviously, but I've never actually created a process or anything. No, I mean, I, I, I've done it for training purposes and to show people how to do it. And, you know, I, I've written demos that use reflection to detect the annotation. And it's, it's not a bad thing to do. You know, again, it's, it's a little bit obscure. It's not something that a day-to-day Java developer is ever going to do. But I don't, uh, you know, I don't blame that actually being on the exam, you know. But, I mean, if you want to go one level of more obscure than that, um, you manage policies and execute privileged code in the security section. So uh, have you ever, do, do, let me put it this way, do any of you know what a java.policy file is or is it only those that. who wrote applets who can remember what that is? I think I vaguely do, Are you aware recall. of it no idea. I don't even no know what idea. it would look like. Is it key value pairs? I mean, what's the format of the file? No, no, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's got a little syntax all of its own. And basically what you do is you, um, it's a, first of all, it's a security policy file and you can have many of them. You can have one per user and then there's a system one and so on in the, the VM home directory. And uh, inside there you say grant and then you give the, uh, the name of a digital key or you give a URL, you know, so you can say uh, the, the grant and then a key or a URL and then you say brace, brace and you list some of the security permissions, you know? So basically you can say any jar file with this digital signature has these permissions, yeah? Or uh, you can say any jar file loaded from this location, you know, has these permissions. And um, that goes back to the, the early days of applets, you know, where you had like elf bowling running in the browser or something. And, uh, but by default, it wasn't allowed to access the file system or use reflection or anything like that. So the idea would be that, uh, if it asked for uh, permission to run some privileged code and it said, look, you know, that this this code, this action uh, needs the file system, well, then the browser would pop up a little dialog box and say, you know, can um, can Elf Bowling access these folders? And you, you would say yay or nay and so on. But, you know, the, the, I remember that yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the fact okay. that, you know, the, the fact that this is actually on the, the Java 11 developer exam is just a little bit mad because, I mean, I, I, I knew it because I used to teach Java security for applet development, you know, but that's that, that's not the happy path anymore for the, the average Java developer last I heard, you know. How, how important is certification these days generally anyway? You know, when we're getting to uh, an era where, University degrees may not even be that important. You know, it's whether or not you can do the job. And, and most employers now have different ways of sort of measuring people when they're coming in. Do, yeah. you, think, do you think certification is important these days? Well, I have a really soft spot for the Java certification exam, mainly because I have it. Uh, but I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's called the uh, you know, it's called the programmer exam for a reason. I mean, that, that what Neil was talking about there with annotations is a good one. You know, it, it actually forces you to go out and learn language that you would use on a day to day basis anyway. You know, so they you know that the average Java developer in day to day coding doesn't need to go out and write their own annotations and add elements to annotations and use the reflection API to check for annotations. But, you know, it, it improves you, you know, it makes you better if you understand that that's how 
things like Spring and JUnit and so on actually work. So it it will make you a better developer by forcing you to kind of clean out your closet. I, I would actually, I think I would be annoyed if if like an intern or something, you taught them how to use annotations, like how to create them, because they would just go straight away and do it in the next project. And then it's like, why do you have annotations in here when you don't need it? It was one of those things is like, oh, I know this new shiny thing, so I'm going to use it. And then you're like, mm. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah it's good and bad things yeah. there for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it did help me. I remember whenever I was learning the language and I, I did the exam and it forced me to, you know, in the past where I'd have used IntelliJ to fix something or I knew that if you get compiler message A, you do B and so on. But it, it, it does force you to understand why. So it, it, it is a good thing for, for that reason. But uh, yeah, I just if, think it, that... if it was a language other than Java, I'd probably agree with you. It would be, <laughs> it would be useful. But given my hatred of Java. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always interesting to me that the Microsoft certifications, they never had a language cert. So, for, you know, I, I'm, I've never seen Microsoft produce a certification exam for the language. You know, you, you could be like an ASP.NET developer or a, a certified SQL Server admin or, you know, there, there are all these Microsoft certifications. But as far as I know, they've never offered a language certification. Do you think the world of C Sharp has suffered because of this? <laughs> I think it the, wor- the world in general emphasis. yeah so uh, I, I don't know if it would have been better or worse but um, it would certainly have you know have made c-sharp developers better in the long run anyway so um yeah so so the biggest question that i have about these sort of things is if i get java certified mm-hmm. what what percentage increase in my salary am i going to get you will uh, because uh, you know companies do use it as uh, a kind of uh, hurdle that you have to get over for promotion or before you get a, a certain salary. Oh, bump. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we know companies who do that, and uh, not just with Java certs, you know, but with these days with AWS certs and other stuff. So yeah, it seems like AWS certification is all the rage. Everybody's yeah. doing it. Yeah. But I mean, there are a few certification exams that are a big thing. I mean, I think for for people, you know, slightly outside of software development, but getting your Cisco certification and so on, that's a that that's a really big deal for kind of ops type people. I think so. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot of Linux certifications and there's a lot of uh, testing certifications as well, aren't there? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's interesting whenever you look at the topics and you're you're trying to say, you know, do people really care about this? Because there's there's one about the uh, the module system, you know, and uh, testing your ability to understand how Java nine modules work. And my answer to that is, who cares? You know, so uh, I just have to stop myself going on a mad rant about OSGI. You know, uh, so. Let's save that for the next podcast. We can talk about OSGI. Invite Tara. Yeah. You can't have an OSGI podcast <laughs> without Tara being there to fight the corner, you know. We're, we've done we've done two, so we might as well do three, and then we can we can take our pick from the best one. So, so Neil, you're going to rant about about AWS or something, um, and tell us how terrible it is. Yeah. So, so this week it was we we're trying to replace Jenkins. So we typically use Jenkins for all our CI and CD stuff, but Wrangling. Jenkins with a nice kind of AWS continuous delivery system is a bit awkward and like artifact storage and all that stuff. So as we're building a serverless app, we thought let's use AWS pipeline for all that kind of need. And on paper, much like everything, you look up AWS, you go under their 
their overview doc and they're like this will cure the world of hunger you know that's basically how they write every summary and you're like oh yes i'm energized and then you go in and you start writing in our case we're writing cdk we're not writing uh, cloud formation so we already have kind of a stack set up in cdk and we're just trying to like wrangle that stack into a code pipeline but constantly you just run up against limits and just weird limits so there's the one limit is cloud formation has a limit to how many resources you can have in a stack which probably makes sense if you're writing raw cloud formation because you don't want this big template code and you can create abstractions that just totally gets in the way and makes things really awkward so it makes you basically abstract things when maybe you don't feel comfortable doing it which is kind of annoying but limitation you get around it create nice code abstractions you know that's what we do the next thing was we have currently about 28 lambdas and we want to upload them all separately so then the deployment stage of code pipeline can go and go into s3 pull out a zip and deploy that lovely nice flow and then you've all this history but you can't output more than five artifacts per build so it means that you have to repeat all your builds. Do I put five here, five here, five here? <laughs> no, nothing tells you this. It's only after you type it up and you get it to run that it says, oh, I'm sorry, you can only output five. And it's just- So, so uh, just to get the, but I, I thought, thought the whole point about AWS was that you could you know, break stuff up into many small things. So, so one would assume that the, uh, that the build system would be optimized for architectures producing many small things as opposed to- uh, a few big things. One one would hope for such a glorious, <laughs> glorious thing. <laughs> so yeah, unfortunately, ideally in the future, we'll just build those things separately. Basically have like a separate container that will build each Lambda separately and push it up and do that kind of stuff. But that's another whole flow. There's, there's just a lot of stuff you have to write yourself. And much like a lot of AWS stuff, they just don't really... They don't write a flow that makes sense. You know, you would think that the future for them is everyone is serverless, everyone has code pipeline, and everyone probably has a web app. So just create a big example that does that and say, this is the standard. You can go off the standard, but this is the standard. We want everyone to start here, but they don't. They just have these piecemeal, like, happy path things. Like, oh, you have a code pipeline to deploy one Lambda. You know, just point it at the Lambda in JavaScript, and it all works. It's all magic. You have one that just deploys the S3. Here's one that just does that and all works. It's all magic. Oh, you want to use more than one Lambda? You could end up with one pipeline per item then. So then what, what you need is AWS meta pipeline, you know. Which yeah. will... <laughs> That's the other thing. AWS flat map. That's what you'd call it. You would call it AWS flat map. And I Don't give them ideas. Don't I... give them ideas. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, effectively, it's I, much like a lot of AWS stuff. They kind of just hammer it out to get it out there, but it's totally not real world. It's not useful in the real, it's just about useful in the real world, but it's painful. And I hope that in a year or two, they're going to look at Google and just copy what they did and then make it pretty. Um, yeah, but... it does. It does seem to be like within AWS that that, you know, just do everything in the cloud, the messaging that they push you to. It's, it, it seems to be like a real step backwards in terms of development experience. You know, yeah. So I I don't have much experience with pipeline. I've I've used I do have I actually 
do have something running on pipeline um, on one of my personal projects, but I didn't I didn't do any work for it. Like there's a there's a walkthrough, so I probably followed their happy path to make it work. Um, the thing that confuses me, and maybe you know because you've used it, pipe code pipeline and code deploy and code build are all like in the same management console window. So it's the meta thing, as as Gareth was alluding to. So pipeline is like the thing that orchestrates those things. So within pipeline, it orchestrates. Uh, code deploy, which is the bottom on code build, and then there's like the code source thing, and you can use multiple different providers for that. There's this code star thing, which hooks in with Bitbucket and it pulls down your source and all this stuff. Um, so pipeline is just like an orchestrator, but it itself needs to be orchestrated. Can be a stack. Yeah, you, you can you can you have to deploy that. So you have to deploy your pipeline. So you need a uh, a template, a stack that deploys pipelines. So, so you need a CDK stack that deploys like, a Kubernetes cluster that deploys a, 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 a process that deploys your pipeline. So, yeah. And then we ship um, the gorilla. Yeah, so yeah. This is the right definition the of other, shipping, isn't it? <laughs> the other bugbear, which I'm not too sure how we can resolve this, is if you move to co-pipeline, you have to go all in. So you know, all your all your all your stacks are kind of linked together. You know, you have this flow. So you say, I build lambdas, then I build my API, then I build my web app. That makes sense. But how do you do that locally now? You know, before you could use nested stacks. You could say, just do this one first, and then do this one that. But now you've lost that because that's all wrangled and defined in this pipeline, and you can't execute a pipeline locally. You can execute code build locally. There's this nice little Docker image that they have, and this hacky old script that they have that will do that. And that will deploy your artifacts, but there's no way to do the deployment step. And you can orchestrate this nice, consistent steps between deployment, but then you lose it as soon as you try and do it locally. And that's a big feeling as well. I yeah. find. So is the AWS way not that you should have your own personal developer account? You do. So we do. We do have all that. In our team, we have that. Everyone has their own account. So you can do that. You can have that kind of deployment. But the issue is, let's say I just make one line change to one Lambda. In the old way, when it was all done in Jenkins and we did it locally, you could just deploy that stack on its own or you know, just do a quick deploy locally. Now you have to go and commit this little, like testing out this thing, commit, you know, and then push that up and then it sees it and then it does the pipeline. And that developer flow is already pretty crap with serverless in general, is now even worse with pipeline. And that's, that's my worry. You lose developer experience, the game, you know, scalability and consistent pricing and all that kind of stuff. And there is there's good things for customer that's great, for developer not so much. And I'm very much an advocate. And they're, they're they're paying. Yeah, they're paying for developers. But as a customer, they're paying. You're paying yeah. for your time. You're paying for your ability to maintain yeah. the system. You're also paying for all of that extra, you know, things that are now that you could just yeah. run locally. You're not actually having to pay to run those in the one cloud. of the big issues I have with this is if they had these templates that people could work off, you know, here is the typical product. Cause this doesn't seem like an outlandish product, but just a bunch of lambdas that run your backend infrastructure, a web app that clients talk to and a pipeline to deploy it all. Like that seems like a pretty typical flow that a lot of people would want in their heads, but they don't set the standard there and they don't build the tools around it to make the developer experience good. It's AWS kind of seem to build it for DevOps people, but don't build it for developers. But when you look at something like Google, which I have briefly looked at, 
they did it the other way around. It's it's nice for developers, probably not so nice for DevOps. So maybe there's a wee product yeah. there we should build. There's always a product to build. Some sort of markup type language that you could define your pipeline in. Just not YAML. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> YAML is was... awful. I would I would honestly prefer XML over YAML. That's how much I hate. <laughs> That's, no, that's that's pretty, pretty that's pretty stark. Like that's I absolutely hate YAML. 